Joining me is Grant Newsham. And uh, Grant, before we talk about things in the Western Pacific, you are a native native Virginian. Uh, Virginia sent a very interesting political message to the nation last night. And uh, I was wondering if you might share your thoughts going into the election. What did you think uh, was going to happen as somebody who's been a— a lifelong observer of political events in Virginia. And uh, and then uh, we'll talk about your thoughts on last night. Pretty uh, pretty big, um, I don't know, political shakeup in the nation as the nation watched and still waiting to find out what happens in New Jersey. But um, as a lifelong Virginian, what did you think would happen in the, uh, in the election of yesterday? I thought it was going to be very interesting. Uh, and I thought the Republican candidate, Youngkin, had a good chance uh, but the sort of the voting public in Virginia has changed so much in the last 30 years with so many people from uh, outside moving into the Washington, D.C. area. And most of those people being, you know, Democrat voters who have nice government jobs and think the, the government is doing just splendid. Uh, but they do seem to vote Democratic. So these northern counties uh, used to vote Republican, and now they're overwhelmingly Democrat. Uh, so I was thinking, though, that there was just such a sort of a, a change in mindset among many, many people, particularly having seen this school board nonsense uh, that's that's been playing out, where um, you know the kids are being indoctrinated. You had that sexual assault in a high school, which the school board covered up because it wasn't politically correct to admit that, you know, this sort of thing is what happens when you do what they're, they're doing. And you have the governor say parents should have nothing uh, to say about, you know, how their students are taught, that you say these things and those things resonate, maybe more than anything else. So I thought, so I thought it was going to be very interesting and that the Republicans had a chance. And I was, but did I think the Republican would win? I thought he might. But I've really just got a bad feeling these days that I had a feeling that at the last minute that when it became clear how much the Republican was winning by, that somehow votes would magically appear uh, from Fairfax County and tip the scale. You know, and it's that you know, is something one does worry about. But it didn't happen. Uh, why? I, I don't know. But I'm not complaining. Uh, but that's uh, was uh, was um, how I saw it, and it's worth noting that Mr. Trump, when he ran for re-election, uh, he got clobbered in Virginia. He lost by a lot, and to have this kind of shift after what, 18 months or less uh, is a big deal. And were I the the Democrats and the Biden administration, I'd be very worried. Uh, you know, one. So, you know, it was it's an interesting uh, outcome, and we'll see how if it's a bellwether for uh, the future. Uh, I'd be surprised if it was not. Um, but it was very interesting to see. You know, these are tumultuous times in the United States, and you know, we'll see how this goes. But to say Virginia of say 60 years ago and uh, and today is very different, but many places are. That's not unusual. Um, but to have um, the outcome that we saw was uh, pretty interesting. Now, just for the record, uh, Grant is from the aristocratic <laughs> bastion of uh, Virginia, and that is Alexandria. So, um, you know, he tries to often play that down, but just for the record, he's a, he's a Virginia blue blood. All right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. We're not really um, real Virginians, but oh, of the a faux faux Virginians of the Alexandria Newshams. Yes, that would be me, <laughs> <laughs> Grant Newsham. Yes, yeah, of yeah, the Alexandria Newshams. Yeah, um, no, it was interesting. It was interesting, and I agree with you. It was with great, um, uh, what a bit of uh, uh, caution that I watched. I thought, you know what, then towards the end of the evening, as you watched here on the West Coast, you started hearing things like, oh, well, the vote in 
just went down because that was an estimate. And we were now hearing from counties that there are mail-in votes that they have. And you're like, here we go. <laughs> I've heard this before. And I like what you said, Grant. I thought, oh, my God, it's going to happen again. All of a sudden, votes are going to come, and they're going to start unboxing stuff. And the observers aren't going to be there, and we're going to get to go through this again. You know, and that's not, you know, it isn't just sort of um, sort of uh, telling ghost stories. You know, the, the director of elections for Fairfax County was on CNN before the election, and he said that he had asked the governor of Virginia, um, Blackface Northam, uh, if Fairfax You know what, Grant, County- isn't it amazing? How does that guy survive that? I mean, he There's just no- said, I'm not going to I'm not going to quit. Look, and here's, if you've never seen this, there's a picture in his grad, his med school yearbook and of two men. One's in a Ku Klux Klan outfit. The other's in blackface. Now, Northam doesn't say which one he is, all right? But he's one of the two, and somehow politically he survives it because he just goes to ground, and the media is not really going to get after a Democrat for shit, shit like that. But it's it's still when Grant just throws it off there, blackface Northam or Ku Klux Klan Northam, whichever one he was, right? Amazing, amazing. Yeah, it, it it's Virginia. It's just it's outrageous, you know. And if he wasn't a Democrat, he'd be, you know, selling used cars somewhere, which is what he should be uh, for doing that. But the and not having hey, hey, Grant, Grant and I are about his age. Excuse me for interrupting yet again. But Grant, I mean, in the eighties was like were Klu- were Ku Klux Klan rolling around in blackface. Was that like something people did? <laughs> no, it wasn't. We had already been through the sixties, right? That not that stuff wasn't okay even in the eighties for crying out loud. So anyway. Just yeah, but but what I was saying was that the director of elections in northern in Fairfax County, America's richest and sort of most well-educated and, uh, country county, and that he asked the governor if they could susp- uh, not follow state voting laws when it came to having, say, a witness sign a, a mail-in ballot uh, and putting the last four digits of social security numbers onto mail-in ballots as well. He said, he asked the governor, is it okay if we don't do that? Uh, and that is straight out of Banana Republic. Uh, Republic's not the store, but, you know, these, what we used to call crappy little countries in South America. Uh, and that's what we've become. You have that guy asking to do that. And even, you know, Blackface Northam, who is not the sharpest guy, realized that that was a litigation trap if they went with that. Uh, so when someone with that position, the director of elections, asks to cheat, basically, you've really got to have some concerns about what's coming. So it was a relief to see that the election appears to have come off uh, without uh, any undue manipulation. You know? All right. Um, and I hope it's a sign of the future that we can at least have fair elections. Yeah, at least elections that people believe in the outcome. Um, yes. The uh, I want to. Uh, President Biden was just at the. Uh, he was just uh, in Europe for the G20, and then in uh, Glasgow for the uh, for the the uh, climate summit. Um, President Xi has not left China in 21 months. Uh, he did not attend um, the G20 or the uh, or the climate summit. Um, is there anything to make of that? Well, there's lots of, um, you know, questions being raised. And, you know, some say that he's afraid to leave the country because if he leaves, there'll be a coup and he'll be um, not welcome to return. And others say, well, he just doesn't want to go. Uh, he doesn't think he needs to because he's in good shape, and you know China sort of has an upper hand over uh, things, and you know these other countries that have been bowing down to it nicely. Uh, so you have these two extremes as to why he's not leaving the country. Uh, I think there's maybe some of each uh, that, it, um, but 
you know, I don't read as much into it as some people do. Uh, but I think not going to the climate summit, it's, I mean, who would? You know, I sort of got to hand it to him for not going. It's sort of funny, you know, that he doesn't uh, think that he needs to, that uh, he doesn't think the event is important enough, uh, and that China doesn't get anything, he doesn't get anything out of it if he goes. Uh, and uh, Vladimir Putin, the, the head of Russia, did this, he didn't show up either. So that was actually a fun, kind of an insult for uh, the, the climatologists uh, who all got together for that thing so Mr. Biden could have a nap. Um, <laughs> the, uh, but, but hey, Grant, did not- you notice they sent the little aide running in there? So you could imagine the staff watching off to the side, and they see him nodding off, right? And they're watching on the monitor going, hey, you, <laughs> go ask him what color his socks are. What, yeah. sir? Go ask him, get your ass in there and ask him a question. He's falling asleep for, oh, yes, sir. Uh, Sir? You know, I can appreciate falling asleep in those things uh, because I've done it before. (laughs) But uh, but, I'm also not falling asleep throughout the day. And I'm not the president of the United States. Two small small caveats there. So I'm, you know, sort of being, having some fun at his expense. And I understand falling asleep, but it, it's really, you know, you didn't like you got to do a whole lot else other than stay awake. Um, but they, but she not going to the event, uh, I think it really shows his contempt for the, the whole climate change business and, and the, the extent to which China has no intention of following any environmental or climate, whatever regulations or promises they never have. Uh, you know, if they do that, it's going to hurt their economy. So therefore, they simply will not do it. Um, and also by pushing this climate stuff, you know, saying that they are going to follow these laws and they, they really just need some some time and some help, they, it gives them a potential cut at the sort of this climate change fund the, the rich nations are chipping in on. And it could, you know, so China could get as much as like twenty-five uh, billion dollars a year uh, if they pretend that they're really trying their hardest. They're just a developing country, uh, and they really are serious. <laughs> so that's that's part of the racket uh, that China has going with uh, the Paris Accord with the climate change. The developing uh, country and, thing is rich too. I might add. Oh yeah, they always say they are, and then they always trumpet how they you know, have more skyscrapers and building cranes than any other place on earth. And they're the shiniest, most powerful country on earth. You kind of can't have both. You're one or the other, but they um, play the card very, very well. And you have uh, plenty of American commentators who say China really does want to help on climate change. You know, they really are serious about it. You know, they just have to have some time. Um, so they, you know, you got to hand it to them if you can. How do you pull that? that? How do you pull that rabbit out of the hat? That you can it be both ways? Can you not show up to the conference but be really serious? Oh, that's easy. You have so many people <laughs> bending over backwards to claim that, oh, these these Asians, they just don't understand things. You know, they, you know, you gotta, they're different, uh, and there's a condescension in it all that they're just not as smart as us. Uh, so we have to accommodate them. We have to tolerate these dim-witted children, and yet they're they're actually smarter than us, and they're playing these fools for all it's worth. And say it's uh, chutzpah is one of the words sometimes used, and yes. they've got it. And if you know if you've got an idiot across the table playing poker with you, well, you're glad to have an idiot across the table playing poker with you, and you can't criticize the Chinese for that. The, um, I want to ask you next question. Um, is the U.S. revoked the license of a top Chinese telecom company here in the United States, right? And uh, China Telecom is the world's largest state-owned telecommunications operator. It has been accused by the United States as being an agent that um, uses its communication nodes to, uh, in conjunction with Chinese uh, 
um, disinformation and other campaigns. Um, I'm curious about your thoughts about this. Uh, yeah, it's closing it down is a good thing or foretelling it to get out of town. Um, that's good. It also started under the Trump administration. Right. And the Biden administration is just finishing off what uh, Mr. Trump's people started. Uh, the fact that China Telecom was allowed to operate in the United States and that we are now just getting around to sending them home, uh, that is what is most alarming. Uh, they should never have been allowed in the, into the country into the first place. And you look at how long it has taken to do something about it, because uh, they're mis one the the potential threat was known from day one, but they have actually done things that have been alarming. Uh, and the you know just like ten years ago, you know it's things like um, all of the internet traffic in the United States suddenly routing through China. Uh, and then going then not routing through China. You know, they've done this sort of manipulation that has been detected uh, before. And that should have been you know, enough to get them terminated. And if this is what has been reported, you can bet there's a lot of other stuff going going on. But, you know, why would you ever let the telecommunications company from a communist country like this, which is our avowed enemy, into our telecommunication system, into the network. Uh, the smart guys who you know do this sort of um, sort of electronic penetration, it's or, what it, uh, or the you know, whatever you call it, they they can just run wild. You know, if suppose that during the Cold War that AT and T had been allowed to set up business in Russia, and it had access to the entire Russian communications network. You know, I suspect we have some clever guys who could have capitalized on that very nicely. And the Chinese are just as clever as us. And they, that's what they have used is they've used China Telecom as a platform. And who knows what they have got going and who knows what they've set up, got in place and still may be able to to use once they're they're gone. But they should never have been allowed in in the first place. And then it shouldn't have taken 20 years uh, to get rid of them. And it, they're still not out. They've been given 60 days or so. And it shows you these companies have been allowed to list on U.S. stock markets and, you know, get a lot of uh, convertible currency, a lot of dollars to that funds the communist juggernaut. And they were allowed to do that, even though they, they had a special provision that they did not have to follow the normal listing standards, which means exposing your 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 books and your uh, accounts, etc., that Chinese companies didn't have to do that, and the New York Stock Exchange agreed to that. Uh, the U.S. administrations agreed to that. Uh, so you have these country companies that are basically frauds, and they're allowed to list on U.S. exchanges, and U.S. pension money goes into these things, and. Nobody did anything about it. And then a couple of years ago, Senator Rubio, uh, Congressman Rubio from Florida and some others passed a law saying, you know, we're going to delist all these companies that were allowed unless they can uh, sort of prove their, you know, why they should be on there. And they, they gave these companies who should never have been allowed to list in the first place. They were given three years to fix the problem. And then then they might be delisted. So that shows you how much power the Wall Street and the financial class has is that you have uh, companies that are breaking the law that should not have been allowed to list. They get a three-year grace period and they have to basically cheat for three years uh, straight and then they, then they can be delisted. But if they cheat for only one of the, those if they're honest one year, then they have three years to keep cheating again. Uh, that instead of just closing them down and sending them home right away. Uh, so these guys, these companies have got a lot of influence in the in the United States' ruling class. The um, One more business kind of question. Yahoo announced that they were pulling out of China over, quote, challenging business conditions. Um, let's see. The firm said it, its decision was due to, quote, increasingly challenging business and legal environment in the country. 
Yahoo users in China are now greeted with a message saying that its sites are no longer accessible. The company says Yahoo products and services remain unaffected elsewhere around the world. In a statement, Yahoo said, Yahoo remains committed to the rights of our users and to free and open internet. We thank our users for their support. Uh, Yahoo's move closely follows behind Microsoft's announcement last month that it is removing LinkedIn its business-focused social networking from China, something it also blamed on, blamed on significantly more challenging operating environment and greater compliance requirements. C- compliance requirements. What the hell does that mean? Oh, it means you have to give all of your uh, sensitive uh, customer information, your own sensitive business information, your proprietary information, uh, your security codes, etc. you you got to give them all to the Chinese Communist Party. You have to hand it over. Uh, and that's what only an idiot would do. But once again, it took these companies many years to figure out that that's what the China market is like. Uh, the objective of the Chinese government for any foreign country that goes into China is to uh, really suck anything of interest out of it and then destroy it and replace it with a Chinese company. That is the objective. Um, why it require why people who can go to Wharton Business School at Harvard Business School and not understand this uh, is a mystery, but maybe it shouldn't be. Uh, but this is, shouldn't be any surprise to anyone, uh, except, um, and it used to be a surprise that it took these people that long to figure out what the inevitable outcome for them in China would be. Uh, you know, Yahoo's and LinkedIn, you know, are a couple of recent examples who finally said enough. Uh, but the Microsoft, I remember back in, it was like the early 2000s, I remember asking a guy, uh, who knew this stuff? I said, "Is Microsoft ever going to be profitable in China?" He said, "No." And yet, Microsoft is still there, you know, handing over favors and money and stuff uh, to the Chinese Communist Party. You know why? I don't know. You know because they must. You know, it's hard to believe that people are that dumb to think that for them it's going to be different. Uh, but it won't be. And you know, that's when you think of the China market. If you're somebody thinking of going in, just Keep in mind that the government's objective in China is to destroy you after it's gotten all your stuff. And if you take on a Chinese partner, they've got the same objective. Uh, so it's not exactly, um, you know, a, a, a good market to, uh, to get in if you've got any business sense. It's interesting when you read stories of companies that you wanted to sell into China, took on their Chinese partner gave up their proprietary secrets, and then their Chinese partner undercut them on the rest of the world market. And you you read these stories about these businesses that were essentially gutted. <laughs> and it was like, and, and, and they all say the same thing. Don't do it, right? Don't uh, do it well, because they- the, the, the game plan that you just talked about, I want to say one guy, one company was, you know, sold air conditioners, and they saw this Chinese market as this incredible thing. China took their technology, right? They, I mean, they, they essentially stole it. Then they, they created a clone company. That clone company started producing those air conditioners, sold them around the world, undercutting them, and put them out of business. And it's yeah. just, it's, it's, it, it would be laughable were not so many people's livelihood affected by it. But, you know, greed paves the way and blinds people to what it actually is. And so it's, uh, I, I don't know, as you say, it's amazing that these things, you're, you, you've given us an example on Wall Street, you've given us an example in China, right? And, uh, and then you've, you've given us a, an example about the telecoms. All same thing, America greed, American greed, finances it, and then is extremely slow to do anything about the blatant, you know, things that the Chinese are doing. And it's a story that gets told over and over, and it is stunning, I guess. Maybe maybe our greed it shouldn't be stunning to anybody, but to the extent that it happens in our face and we don't do shit about it, it is pretty amazing. Yeah, the, the greed's okay, but the stupidity, you know, like, I mean, there's stuff even I can figure out, and this is one of the things. But the Boeing is another company, you know, that, you know, it's one of these American flagship companies that is all in on China. And 
I don't any any technology they have sent or any sort of thing they have got it, that given the Chinese access to or put in a position the Chinese can get access to it or steal it. That's what that's what's happened. So I don't know if Boeing has any secrets left at all. Uh, and the outcome for them will be no prettier than it has been for uh, any other country, any other big company or little company that gets into China. Uh, of course, I used, as I mentioned, I used to work for Motorola. So if I was as smart as I think I am, I wouldn't, wouldn't have invested in their <laughs> stock uh, employee stock purchase program because uh, they went into China all out and did everything right. And all they did, and I knew it at the time, was uh, they created their competition and eventually the Chinese ate them. And what is left of Motorola, most of it is Chinese owned. Uh, and if you're old enough, you remember that name. You know, oh, Motorola used to be, it was like Intel or Apple. It was that prominent a company. Uh, but they got into China and really got hammered there. But they did some other stupid things. But the China uh, experience was not, and they shouldn't have done it. How is your... Uh... Motorola ESOP doing is it is it is it fair is it fair is it faring well are, are you are you planning your retirement based largely on that? Well, I've got this big bag of uh, Jefferson Davis's money um, <laughs> under my bed as well, so I carry it. But I think there it's probably of comparable value. Got it. Um, since the last time we spoke, um, I think the article is an interview with um, Air Force. Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who will soon be replaced by a Navy guy. But um, he said that uh, after Milley talked about the almost Sputnik moment, um, General Hyten talked about the Pentagon being rattled by these Chinese moves. Um, what, what do you make of all that? Like, are, like how do you get... Are you not paying attention? Have you not been paying attention for the past ten years? Can you? What are your thoughts on on the Pentagon <laughs> that, being rattled now? Well, that that was part of it, just like you. It, um, you're thinking, well, why are you saying this on your way out the door uh, instead of a long time ago? Uh, what he was saying was, I think he was saying some good necessary things that I almost didn't want to keep reading the article because it was so depressing. Everything he said was the jump that the Chinese have gotten on us in these particular areas. Uh, and the, you know, he, he was right as far as I know. And, you know, and it really is a, a concern. I think you might kind of, you know, can, you can, might compare it kind of to say you're driving along the highway at, you know, 75 miles an hour and you're thinking you're doing okay. And, and you get passed by somebody who's going 100 miles an hour that you didn't see coming. Well, you, if you had looked in your rearview mirror, you would have seen them coming. Uh, but you didn't think to look in your rearview mirror because there's no possible way anybody will ever drive faster than 75 miles an hour. And that's what the Chinese have done in this area of missile technology, outer space stuff, uh, their nuclear development. Uh, it really has been impressive you know, what they've done. And we are at a disadvantage. Uh, but as you, as you note, if, if anyone at the Pentagon is rattled, um, well, I think that's, if you want to downsize at the Pentagon, I would probably an easy way to do it would be to find anyone who was rattled and show them the curb. Uh, if they didn't see what was coming and take necessary uh, measures to maintain our lead, uh, that they really, I suspect there's employment they could uh, engage in elsewhere, which would be more appropriate for them. Uh, and and that is, there really is no excuse for what has happened. There should be no surprises as to what has come out of the PRC. But the general did speak forthrightly about it. Um, and, you know, it was, uh, you know, that if an optimist would say, well, that at least at least it was said. Uh, but we've got there, ourselves that's into a, fair, a bit of a That's fix. a fairly yeah. low bar. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, four stars, you know, these guys get paid, you know, more than the Lance Corporals do by like a hundred times more. And, you know, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to take those positions, you know, you've got a responsibility to perform and it doesn't look as if they have. Uh, so I, the fact, you know, there's, 
and why that isn't pointed out, you know, to more more often, you know, why did wasn't this, you know, how is it that this happened? You know, that needs to someone needs to pay attention to that. You know, in addition to what are we going to do about it? Um, so it was just, you know, the depressing reading. And as I said, I didn't even I almost I didn't want to even keep reading because it was that bad. Uh, so. All right. On that on that ominous note. Um, but that's nothing new. It's a theme. You know, I saw the Chinese, I don't know what they call it. Uh, it's something dash 20 um, carrier fighter jet. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so it's their, their naval version of their stealth fighter. And, you know, just w- what a coincidence. It looks oddly like the F-35. Now... It was amazing. It's uncanny. How could they develop their own technology? And it looked, if I didn't know and somebody just flashed a picture, I said, I'd I'd look at it and say F-35. And they'd be like, oh, no, that's a Chinese aircraft. Uncanny the way their their equipment looks like ours, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, Boy, amazing, actually. Who would have thought? But the the F-35 program has been thought to be penetrated by the Chinese for a long time. And uh, they've, I think, looted it pretty well. And Honeywell got in trouble not long ago for having turned over some designs for parts of the F-35, I think it was, uh, to the Chinese. And that's Honeywell. And they paid like a $9 million fine or something. It wasn't much uh, at all. Um, and they didn't seem to care that they'd done it or that they got caught doing it. Well, that may be what they were cared about was getting caught. Uh, but the... That um, whole aircraft carrier thing is interesting because this was back, I think it was in the 2000s that there was a Navy admiral, and I can't track down who it was, but I remember it so well, who offered to uh, teach the Japanese everything we know about aircraft carriers, uh, you know, as a sign of good faith, you know, and, um, and I'm not making this up. He thought this would be a splendid way to build some sort of fraternity between us and the Chinese but that was the kind of thinking which was going on then. And then you, in equal measure, you would hear plenty of people say, well, let the Chinese go ahead with aircraft carriers. Who cares? You know, they're, they're not smart enough to figure out how to do carrier operations. You know, it took us, what, 80 years to figure them out. The Chinese will, of course, take 240 years because they're not as clever as us. And it will bankrupt them as well. Well, once again, they've um, uh, surprised um people who should have known better. Uh, but they'll figure out the aircraft carrier thing. Uh, you know, it'll take them a little bit, but not long. Uh, and this late, yeah, this seeing their version of an, of an F-35B or what, or the, 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 air, the or C, whatever the, or whatever the, the aircraft carrier capable one is that they, um, uh, you knew it was coming. It isn't a surprise and it's just uh, more a manifestation of uh, some, uh, our shortcomings and, uh, letting things happen that we shouldn't have let happen. I just, uh, yesterday, I was kind of perusing the news of looking for, um, I was having a discussion about the Navy revealed that uh, that the the USS Connecticut actually ran into a, a subsurface mound. And so I was kind of discussing whether I believed that or not, right? Because I thought these were supposed to be very sophisticated devices and that, you know, they could like, if there was like a mountain of dirt in front of a submarine, like the submarine had some capability to detect that. And so I thought, no, they're lying. And then somebody wrote me a very sarcastic email and they went down the list. McCain, Fitzgerald, Somerset, Bonhomme Richard, Fat Leonard, Fat Leonard Two. And you don't believe that the silent service is impacted by all of this. And then I immediately reversed course. I said, point well, point well made. I'm assuming that the silent service is impervious to that. And they are probably telling the truth. Well, so I went, I went rooting around. And I found these, these guys who do this podcast about things nautical. And they had an aerial image of the sub in in Guam and you could see the front the front cone of the uh, submarine is off 
it got it got knocked off, right? It bonk it got bonked into a mountain, and then it 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 came off because you could see the sonar arrays that sit in the front of the submarine. They're clearly visible in the water, and um, <laughs> so I'm watching that, and then it kind of ended. But the guy he went on and he started talking about Chinese aircraft production. They are in the process of building a Ford class carrier in China. This thing is so big it is stressing their dry dock facility where it's being made. All right. But the Chinese are now producing. It's not as big as long as 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 the Ford class, but it is approximately close. And that's where they're at. And so um, it's very interesting. Chinese are building big, sophisticated ships. And, and, and if you're building aircraft carriers, you're in the business of power projection. So uh, General Hyten, well said, well said. So anyway, I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. I want to talk about your article. Um, I want to talk about t- training the Chinese Marines, Okay. Um, now, interesting article by John Fang, U.S. Marines training Taiwan elite troops in Guam. I hadn't seen that before. So what do you make of all of that, Grant? And, and I, honestly, Taiwan steps into the world um, community and out of the shadow of China in the last 12 to 24 months have been nothing short of miraculous. You couldn't get people to say Taiwan, you know, uh, 18 months ago. And, mm-hmm. uh, and and now Taiwan, you know, whether we talk semiconductor business or, or China or defense is, is all in the news. So uh, talk to me about this thing going on in Guam. Um, is it significant? I think it is. Uh, the what, what it is is the the Chinese the Taiwanese Marines have sent a uh, platoon about forty Marines to Guam to train with the the U.S. Marines and apparently to get their their tattoos re-greased or re-oiled as well. But the, <laughs> their uh, sleeve and, tattoos, no less, yeah, and to load up on Kodiak and Copenhagen sort of products. But the um, besides that, uh, this. Taiwan Marine Platoon has gone to Guam to train with the Marines and do the sort of train, you know, platoon level or that company level training. And the this is a good thing. You know, keep in mind that for decades it has been verboten for uh, us to do this sort of thing, to have Taiwan, a Taiwanese unit, even a small one, go overseas and, and like train with us. You know, we did where we refused to be seen in public with the Chinese or the Taiwanese because China would get angry. Uh, it was provocative, etc. So you can imagine this 40 years of isolation hasn't helped the Taiwan military uh, at all. You know, you in fact, you you go to visit a Taiwan Marine base and it's like going to Camp Lejeune in about 1979. <laughs> uh, it literally has that look. It has that feel. And that's the result of 40 years of isolation that we imposed on Taiwan. So it's always good to see this happen. It's worth noting that in 2017, a Taiwan Marine platoon uh, went to Kaneohe Bay in Hawaii and trained with the Marines then. But I'm not aware that we have done it since then. It could be that they have and kept it quiet, uh, but I say I'm just not aware of it. So to have the Taiwan Taiwanese get out and about and do this is a big deal. Uh, but now what matters is what else are we going to do? What's next? Is it going to be something bigger? Uh, uh, is it, you know, with, say, with more troops, a little more complex training? Or, are the Australians maybe going to join in? Uh, even better, maybe the Japanese will show up. Uh, are you going to do it somewhere besides Guam? You know, how about on, in the mainland U.S.? Uh, maybe, you know, you know, one can always hope, but maybe Japan. Uh, that may take a while, but why not? Uh, and also, are we going to exchange liaison officers? Are we going to assign uh, Marine officers and, or staff NCOs or NCOs with the, uh, the Taiwan, Taiwan Marine Corps? 
um, you know, as trainers, advisors, exchange officers, and vice versa, have them do it to us. We're going to do more than just sending 40 guys to, to Guam. You know, that's the thing to look for. And, you know, it's the Marine Corps who's getting the attention. But, you know, are other services going to do that? Why not? You know, the Army and the, uh, yeah, my friends in the Army, but the, um, and the, the Navy and the Air Force, you know, and speaking of the Navy, what next time the Taiwan Marines come to Guam, why not have a Navy ship around uh, that uh, works with them? You know, maybe they do, but, you know, make sure there is and also, uh, you know, don't hide the fact uh, that we're doing it. So it, the question is, what comes next? But this was a good move. Nice to see. It's, of course, overdue, but that's just just being precise. Uh, the fact it's happened is good. And now what, what comes next is the big thing. Uh, so it was a, a nice surprise. And the um, you notice that the this first appeared in a Taiwan uh, newspaper. Uh, and that, I'm told, I gather that the the Taiwanese are less reticent about uh, publicizing this. And it's, it's, you say, as you said, it's part of this, seems to be part of this uh, sort of more aggressive or, more, uh, or less restrained effort by Taiwan and by the U.S. Uh, to uh, speak up for themselves. And that is, that is only a good thing, to my way of thinking, because you know, the... Uh, the idea was for many years in Washington amongst the elite class and the State Department was that, well, you, you didn't want to give Taiwan too much attention because the Chinese would get angry and it would upset our larger, supposedly more important relationship with this country of 1.4 billion people who wants to destroy us. Uh, but that was the thinking. Give Taiwan just enough attention and support uh, that they can breathe and don't suffocate them. Uh, but don't give them anything more. And, you know, hopefully we're over that. And this, so the the event on Taiwan was one small incident, or one small event uh, that, you know, maybe does show a shift uh, in the way that Taiwan is going to be treated. And there's, it isn't just on the military side, there's been a push to get them into the, U, you know, get them into UN organizations, into inter, in the international community, into the Trans-Pacific Trans-Pacific Partnership, that trade agreement. Uh, so it's uh, Taiwan is getting treated differently these days than it was just a couple of years ago. No, it's been um, it's been pretty interesting um, watch watching all of that. I want to ask you two more questions. Uh, one about the Secretary of State. Um, I'm I'm not. I'm not sure what Mr. Blinken's doing. He seems to be caught in his own L-shaped ambush, and he can't get out of it. Um, and then I want to ask you about the elections in Japan. Um, China warns, this is in the Global Times, China warns U.S. on Taiwan question in Rome amid tensions. Picture of uh, Mr. Blinken standing there. Um, Chinese state counselor, and Foreign Minister Wang Yi met with U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken on Sunday on the sidelines of the G20 Leaders Summit in Rome, Italy. Now, these are the first; these are the characters that faced off in where Alaska when the United States got <laughs> wire brushed and and took it and, and yes. took Found it like a new one, I think, is <laughs> and took it yeah. like a bunch of dunces from rural Virginia. Right, go stand in the corner with the dunce hat on and. Uh, and anyway, anyway, I think they they these are the same two people. The first face to face meeting between the top diplomats of the two countries, um, after Blinken made a provocative statement challenging China's sovereignty on the Taiwan question, saying the U.S. will support the islands, secessionist authorities' robust participation in the UN system. Now, just I mean, think about that phrase. The U.S. will support the I, the island's secessionist authorities. What in the world is that? Right. Well, that, Blinken didn't say that. That's Global Times putting uh, words in his mouth. Right. Right. Yeah. So uh, so let's talk about. So Blinken Blinken makes comments about um about coming to the aid of Taiwan and weapons sales. Right. Um. And this is, uh, Wang points out this, the Taiwan question is the most sensitive matter between the between China and the U.S. And if the question is mishandled, 
it would bring subversive damage to overhaul China-U.S. ties, Wang said. Um, anyway, your thoughts on all this kerfuffle? Oh, it's it's to be expected. You know, this is what Taiwan, China always says about Taiwan. You know, they huff and puff and, oh, it's a red line and, you know, it, you know, you're treading on, you tread, you know, you're going to get hammered if you do anything, et cetera, et cetera, to help these secessionists. You know, these, you mean like these free people, 24 million free people <laughs> who don't like you because you're, you put people in prison camps and take their organs from them? Uh, well, yeah, uh, but it, we've talked about it before that, you know, China says Taiwan is it, belongs to it, even though the historical claim is, to put it mildly, not a good one. Uh, and Taiwan does not want any part of uh, the mainland China, other than some Taiwanese Quislings, uh, who are, uh, there's more than a few of them. But, uh, you know, so, so that's the situation. But you have the Secretary of State, uh, who's trying to sort of hold his own. Sort of, and he doesn't, he, you know, he's, he just doesn't have it. You know, if you, if you walked in, you know, if, if you walked into the, the proverbial South Boston bar at, you know, 1 a.m. with Blinken, you know, with him next to you, uh -oh. you pretty much know you one, you were on your own <laughs> and two, that he was going to be the target of something. You know, just he just, you know, some people have that look which says, you know, hit me. And he's unfortunately, you know, a guy with his background and, you know, his claim to fame having won a debating contest in college. Uh, he just doesn't have that steel that you you need. So and what are you telling me? He he's like the. Are you telling me he's like the modern day George McFly? Kind of, you know, with a, <laughs> one of those cardigan sweaters tied in a knot around his shoulders, and right with the, with the uh, sign on his back that says "Kick me." Kind of, you know, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, we all have our oh role to play, um, but. Without some, say, without some steel in there or nearby, that you know he's always at a disadvantage when dealing with the Chinese, and particularly a guy like Wang Yi, uh, and we've seen that on display. So he's sort of trying his best and saying these things, and you know he's, I guess, articulate. But in that business, if you can be articulate, but doesn't matter, uh, you've got to have something to back it up with. And I don't, you know, they, he, you know, they've um, got his number, I'm afraid. Uh, so, but he, he is trying, um, at least. But they, you know, it's not um, the, the position you would want to be in. He doesn't um, strike know. me as well suited for the job. You know, he he comes across as a hand wringing, weak um, person that's trying to be a leader and doesn't so much appear to be he seems like he might be a um a above average intelligence technocrat that might contribute in uh in some kind of opt where you're discussing something but cast as a leader he just seems extremely uncomfortable in that role and he projects that. And I don't care if he's talking about how personal Afghanistan was for him, which almost made me vomit all over my keyboard here. And it's not a cheap keyboard either. It's an expensive Logitech keyboard. And so I was I was loathing the idea that Lincoln would either make my head explode and get brain tissue on it, or that I would retch and 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 get the, the contents of my oatmeal and blueberries all over it as well. Um, but he just seems to be so out of uh, character as a Secretary of State. I don't know. Well, it's almost a parody of a Secretary of State where we expect sort of an effete kind of um, guy who talks, you know, who says, who speaks glibly, you know, speaks glibly and smoothly and has a calm demeanor. Uh, but... Yeah, see, that's the parody of it, but you—that isn't what you need, uh, you, or unless you want to lose, you know, <laughs> lose all your wars. Um, but you know, you've got to there's, say there's got to be some metal in there, you know, and uh, I just don't see it. You know, once again, it's not a personal attack on anybody. Uh, you know, if you put me in the 
cockpit of a 777, uh, I wouldn't do very well. It's not my thing. But uh, and here, too, you know, what we need today with the secretary of state uh, is something different, I'm afraid. You know, there was there used to be a joke. There used to be a secretary of state named Warren Christopher. Yes. Uh, which isn't that long ago, but I guess it is if you're uh, not as old as we are. Uh, and there used to be this joke that uh, um, people uh, used to say, well, this would never have happened if Warren Christopher was still alive. And <laughs> the point was Warren Christopher was alive, but he was the, was the, the sort of the classic cold fish. And, you know, he was a secretary of state and nobody took him seriously. You know, no matter how in, smart and nice and intelligent he might have been he just didn't have that thing you know you can and not it's um and then compare and contrast that with dr evil on the planet right vladimir putin who rolls around the world right with playing a game of bluff right with a with an economy smaller than canada's and uh but he rolls around the world you know in his latest what uh, sailing the ships with the Chinese <laughs> off the coast of Japan. Now he's moving troops around on the Ukraine border, and he's mobilizing his fleet in the Black Sea to play bumper cars with the United States Navy again. All of this bluster, and nobody does it like Putin. I mean, he is the quintessential <laughs> king of the con. Oh, he, it's amazing to watch, and uh, yet we can't get a Secretary of State to do that. Yeah, it's... <laughs> It is amazing to watch. I would like to see more pictures of Mr. Putin, like doing um, sort of sportsman activities. Oh, yeah. You know, I haven't Fishing seen with his shirt of, off, wrestling a bear, know. right? <laughs> I mean, you got to admire the gay guy. You know, he you know, does judo with, you know, guys a third his age. Right. You know, just, plays, just ice, like plays ice hockey. Yeah, you know, just like our leader. Exactly. But the, um, uh, you, so you got to admire him for that. But the Theodore, a, hey, the Theodore Roosevelt of our time. Yeah, but the, what we're, we're talking about, though, is it's an interesting-ish question because, uh, you know, the, it doesn't, you know, being educated and, you know, whatever, you know, having the the, man, the manner to do something, it takes more than that. And you know, I think we've all seen that through in any number of things we've done. And for a position like Secretary of State at this time, you know, it takes, uh, you know, it, it takes a certain uh, sort of make, makeup. Oh, yeah, or je ne sais quoi. There you go. Yeah, that's it. That's when in doubt, doubt, throw the French terms out. Nobody yeah. knows what the fuck yeah. they mean, yeah. but a they sound really good. Oh, yeah, savoir-faire, you can never have enough of that. <laughs> but they, it takes something, and it's, it's and he, I just haven't seen it yet. And the Chinese must laugh whenever they get in the room uh, with him. But, you know, th that, you know, the charitable way to look at it would say at least they're trying to uh, give Taiwan some... Uh, breathing space and uh, recognition. Do you uh, so think Anthony good. Blinken's ever been in a fight? No. <laughs> I don't no. either. I, I doubt it. Yeah, I, that was my South Boston bar recommend. Uh, I know. References. You would go in with You know, if you're going to have to save him at some point. I'm so going to uh, get my ass kicked in this, in this bar. <laughs> because he but, yeah. in his cardigan sweater is going to say something that pisses all these guys off. Oh, he doesn't have to say anything. Right. It's just does some it, people ha have that, that magic. <laughs> no, he seems to have it. He just seems to be like the reluctant. Remember that movie Don Knotts and the Reluctant Astronaut? <laughs> That's what he strikes me as. He just is not the guy. Um, let's talk about Japan, and I will let you go. Um, you know, this is supposed to be a serious segment, by the way. It's not supposed to be comedy, but there seems to be a fair amount in it today. Um, Japan Prime Minister Kishida, strengthened by election win, lays out broad policy plans what just happened? And let me just tell you, every time I ask Grant about an election in Japan, here's what he says. Well, you know, the deck of cards has been shuffled a little bit, but nothing will happen. Nothing will change. China will go, I mean, Japan will go along as it always does, and nothing is going to change. So Grant, what's going to happen um, after this election in Japan? 
things will keep moving at Japan's speed. Uh, the the election outcome was that the, the ruling party, the Liberal Democratic Party, they won. And they did better than some people predicted. But the, So they have a majority in the Diet, and that's their Congress. So they can pretty much call the shots uh, and you know do whatever policies they want to, to do. And that's what they're going to do. But they're going to do it at this speed, which it kind of makes um, manana seem really fast. Uh, and you know and and where this uh, hold on hold on hold on hold on you have to explain that because there may be people that don't understand if you've never lived in the southwestern part of the country or if you've never been to latin america you may not understand what grant just said so please explain that okay well i'm going to culturally appropriate Uh but okay but no there's this notion that in uh say the southwest that you know, to, if you have something that needs done, that there's often not a great sense of urgency. And the idea is, well, we'll take care of it manana. Manana means tomorrow. And tomorrow is, in this case, is a very vague reference to, like, one of these days. That's the better way to, to look at it. One of these days, we'll get around to it. But I want it tomorrow. Well, no, we'll, we'll get it manana. We'll get it tomorrow. Uh, and that's how... In Japan, things go a little slower than manana. Uh, so, you know, you think that new, uh, that replacement airfield at, for Futenma that they've been building at uh, in Okinawa, yes, uh, at yes. Camp Schwab, that yes. they promised to do that in like 1987. And it was going to be done within like five years. Uh, it still isn't done. So figure that out, you know, you're... And, and it isn't going to be done for another decade, probably. So that's Japan time. And so with this new, you have a new administration in uh, in Japan. You know, it's, it's serious about Taiwan and understands Japan's defense needs, understands it has some problems uh, that need addressed. But it doesn't seem to have the urgency to, to do what's necessary to improve their defense, increase defense spending, etc., and, for example, they the LDP, the ruling party, puts in their platform they're going to double defense spending, which is a big deal. But anyone who expects this to happen within a decade or two is going to be uh, disappointed. So what you're going to find is they've got this new administration and all the American officials and diplomats are all ready for this new era and they'll find that nothing much happens except at the speed that Japan wants it to happen at. And we never force them to. We never tell them, look, could you, could you hurry? We really need this. We just let it go. It sort of, um, sort of drifts with the current. And that's so the, the part of all this that I look at most, of course, is defense and foreign policy. And I don't think there's going to be any sudden changes beyond what has already been happening. Uh, so that's the outcome of this. And then there's domestic issues, but I don't, you know, I'm aware of them. But uh, for us, the, it's more that foreign and defense, which is the, the big thing. But it, uh, well, at least the, the bright side of all of this is Japan does have an, an opposition. And they're not complete nuts, but some of them are. Um, and they would be even slower than the LDP. Uh, and they did not do very well at all in the election. So that was sort of a good thing. And they may, did make the mistake actually of aligning with the Communist Party for this election. Japan has a Communist Party. It's got like 12 people in the 465 member diet. And if, you know, and but most of them, if they ever met a real communist, they'd be shocked. <laughs> uh, but, but they are definitely anti-military and anti-US. Uh, and so you have your opposition party the democrat so the c it's the constitutional democratic party um they linked up with the communist party to try and improve their odds and that probably wasn't the best idea because uh, in fact particularly when 90 percent of the public says they do not have a good feeling about china uh, so at least we have you know sort of um, the people we know who are running the, the show continue to run the show uh, in japan Although if you go to the very left wing, the left side of that 
Liberal Democratic Party, you've got some people who are considered Chinese agents. Um, that is how far left the left side of the Liberal Democratic Party is. Uh, uh, the, so that's it's uh, it's a little hard to character categorize uh, the some of the Japanese political parties. But so it'll be you know anyone who thinks anything's going to change quickly, um, you know, will will be disappointed. And as I say, things will move at Japan speed. Uh, and unless we sort of help them, uh, help them move faster, and we haven't shown much willingness to do this. You're... What was the impact of the Chinese and the Russians sailing off the coast? Any? I think I think there was. You know, the the Japanese public and the voting public they right. they do read newspapers, they follow foreign affairs much more than say, the American public does. And as I say, there is this, in the public, there is this sense of risk, a sense of threat from North Korea, from China, from Russia. So the Chinese and the Russians sending those ships, you know, that'll be on all the news. And that does uh, shape people's thinking. And the LDP, they, you know, in their election campaign, they were saying the right things about the need to sort of strengthen defense, etc. And that's what you need to attract votes. Uh, and they did that, I think, effectively. And I think that did have an effect. You know, they there is a real concern in the public about defense. Uh, but the government, in terms of policy making and uh, sort of actually tangibly improving the defense, hasn't done uh, as much as, as really as they need to do. You know, this has been a riveting conversation this morning, Grant. I have to tell you that, uh, that uh, a man of your august intellectual capacity um, – has the picture cleared on what you're going to write this week it, since the last time I spoke with you? Are you uh, have you got off your dead ass relative to that, or are you still procrastinating and uh, and doing your best Anthony Blinken impersonation about what you should do next? Um, hmm. Well, I'm I don't know. I'm going to head back to the uh, the Newsham uh, double wide in Hydla Valley <laughs> in Northern Virginia and the on our estate and uh, figured out the. Um, <laughs> The I what's next? Um, something about uh, the Chinese naval buildup. I think that's the the next thing. But I've got one coming out uh, on the Chinese Marine Corps. Uh, that's uh, I think turned out pretty well. But Would I, we tell us about the Chinese? Can you tease the article for us? Um, tell us. Uh, can you give us a couple minutes on uh, on the Chinese Marine Corps? Would we recognize it? Does it look familiar to us? Those that have served been American naval infantrymen. Yeah, I think so. At least if you if you read um, you know if you actually read about them on paper, it sounds very much like the Marines because what they've tried to do actually is to <clears throat> look at the U.S. Marine Corps, particularly its expeditionary capabilities, say of a MU, and kind of tried to model themselves on that and tried to do some of the things that that MU does. In fact, if you look at the Marine Corps, Chinese Marine Corps mission statements, it looks like the MU, you know, you see that list of all the things a MU can do. Yeah. That's what it's like. Uh, and they, you know, they train and, you know, all over the place, you know, out in the Chinese deserts, up in the high mountains, down in the steamy jungles. Uh, you know, it kind of sounds like every climb and place. And they do that sort of, you know, the sort of MU type of amphibious operations They've got assault uh, vehicle or they, they're equivalent of AAVs, which are better than ours, apparently. Uh, but they, they have sort of taken that Marine Corps ethos uh, to heart and tried to duplicate it. Uh, they have and, you know, they'll get there, you know, unfortunately. Um, but, you know, they haven't they haven't worked in the air part uh, all that well yet. And they're still working on the combined arms joint capability. Uh, but, you know, they say they're working on it. They know that's what they need to, to master. Um, there's about twenty, about 30,000 of them. Uh, there was about 10,000 about five years ago, but they got bigger really quick. And they got bigger by uh, being just handed over some army troops, some Chinese army guys, some of them uh, amphibious trained, some of them not. So that's how they expanded. Uh, so fast, but that's uh, going to take a little time to get everyone up to speed. And they were just recently given their own uh, sort of air, uh, air wing. Uh, 
handed over handed over from the army. Uh, so they're putting the pieces together for you know a Marine Corps that's going to look like ours. Uh, but the real purpose of it is, you know, while it has a role in the Taiwan invasion uh, plan, uh, the real purpose is to use it overseas the way we do, you know, as the sort of this um, combined arms force that's easy, readily available and mobile and able to defend U.S. interests overseas. Well, that's the so, business of power projection, right? That's what it is. And that's exactly what they've got in mind. So all of these you know, commercial interests they have all over the globe and the, the sea lanes that connect those things, you know, you've got to be able to defend those and protect it. Otherwise, if you ever get into a fight with the great Satan with, with us, uh, that America is just going to cut it all off. So you have to be able to defend that and or, or even to do to us what we would do to them. And that's what they're aiming for. That's going to take them a little while, China writ large, to permit at least a decade or I should imagine maybe a little longer, uh, though they surprise us. But the Marine Corps plays that role. And they've got a battalion already in place in Djibouti uh, where they've uh, the Chinese set up their first overseas base in 2017. Uh, and the Chinese Marines participate in these amphibious or not amphibious these naval um deployments to the horn of africa for anti-piracy so the they get to be getting that practice of going overseas working with the navy uh and doing things so that's what the the chinese marines are about and they're going to um you say they'll they'll figure it out you know i as i mentioned before i suggested that the chinese would have their own muse rolling around um, before too long and uh, once to the Marines and they was of course laughed out of the room but if if the Chinese wanted today they could put together two Mews and sail them anywhere they want and do the sorts of things Mews do I think uh, combat operations against you know anybody serious would be too much at the right, moment right. but you know if unless you're going to fight you know, Mews are very useful for the, which is not what Mews do most often, right? Humanitarian assistance. We show yeah. they show the flag, they evacuate people, they're a presence, and it gives mm -hmm. one when you see these things on the news. Oh yes, the Americans are there again, and nobody else is even there, right? That's it. Except you now, it. the Chinese mm -hmm. will be there, and you said it, and that, and they know that. And it's the only reason they haven't done it yet is because they haven't felt like it. But they have the ships, and they've got you know Marines who are trained well enough to, you know, to operate in a what looks an awful lot like a mew, and that that'll be coming, uh, and one of these days maybe manana, and uh, <laughs> they maybe, maybe faster than in that. in the literal sense uh, manana. Yeah. Yeah, the, they are, they wanted, yeah, where would we? Where will we, is it published already? Is it going to be published? Where will we see this thing when it is published? Uh, be able to be on the uh, Center for Security Policy uh, web page, and then I think Epic Times, I think, has put this one out. But I'll send you a copy of it. If you'll send me the link, I'll yeah. put it up. All right, sir. First of all, thank you very much. Uh, congratulations on. Uh, I think the uh, state of Virginia uh, did a favor to the nation. Uh, yesterday, and as a native son, congratulations, even if you are from Alexandria. And uh, thank you very much for the visit. Okay, pleasure. I'm always glad to, to weigh in. All right. Thanks, Grant.